You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a distant God that has remained silent, but you have spoken to us through your prophets, through your word and in your son. Please speak to us this morning. Please help me to speak clearly and faithfully that we might know you more, that we might love you more, and that we might serve you more. All this we ask for your honor and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, what is the value of a person? How much would you be willing to give up for a friend or a loved one? Maybe your time, maybe your money, maybe your energy. But what about someone that you don't know? What about someone that you don't love? What is their value? What are you willing to give up for them? See, some people are obviously valuable. You know, like me, they are smart and attractive or they're wealthy and powerful. Thanks for that laugh from the choir. <laughs> we understand the value of some people by what they do for society, what they do for us. But what about those who aren't so obviously valuable? What about the poor and the homeless? What about the drug-addicted or former criminals? What about the single mom trying to hold down two jobs so that she can pay rent and raise her children? What about the elderly, the orphans, the widows? What is their value? In a world caught up with so much, uh, a world caught up so much with profit margins and progress and productivity, it's very easy to devalue someone because they don't offer us anything. It's very easy to walk past the weak and the vulnerable and overlook them. Well, this passage here is here to give you a reality check. The value of a person is not in their productivity or their paycheck. It's not in the size of their house or the number of cars they own. Here what Jesus is saying is that the value of a person, of the least of all people, is him. The value of a life is Jesus. Look at verse 40 with me. Jesus says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Whatever you do for those of least value, you do for Jesus. See, the value of a vulnerable life is the same value as Jesus' life. What if you looked at vulnerable people in that way? In the first few verses of this passage, a scene is set. It's a scene of final judgment. And Jesus has returned and he's sitting on his throne and all the nations are gathered around him. And as king, he starts to separate out the people as a king, uh, sorry, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. The sheep are given eternal life, but the goats eternal punishment. So this passage is a vision of the final judgment, of the end of time when some will be saved, but others will be punished. The big question is, why? Why are some saved and others not? It seems that from a plain reading of this scripture that salvation is based on what you do. It's based on your works. 
that because these sheep did these good things for these least of all people, that this earns them eternal life. And because the goats didn't do these things, they deserve punishment. But that's not what is going on here. The good works of these sheep are not the cause of their salvation, but the evidence of it. Salvation is not given because they've earned it, but their works are evidence of who they are. It's evidence of their conversion. It shows that they have a transformed heart. Look at verse 34 with me. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now let's look at this phrase, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The word inherit there is very important. And inheritance is not something you can earn, is it? You can't work for it. It's something that is yours by right. It's, it's yours because of who you are, not because of what you've done. And look at what these sheep are inheriting the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is language very similar to what Paul says to, his ch- to the church in Ephesus. In his letter to them, he says that we have been chosen in Christ from, the, from before the foundation of the world. And that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are given the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, which is eternal life. The reason why the sheep are receiving eternal life is not because of what they have done, but because the works that they have done prove that they are part of the family of God. It's proof of who they are, that they are children of God, sheep of the Good Shepherd. If you think that by trying to do what this passage says, you'll earn salvation, then you've got it all wrong. If you think you can go out there and find as many of these people as possible, and do as many good things as you can so that you might be granted entrance into the kingdom of God, then you've missed the point. But you might be thinking this and not realising it. See, it often appears in our churches, in our lives, in more subtle ways. It might sound like, you know, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to smoke, I won't even dance. I'm going to be such a good person that Jesus has no other choice than to choose me. He owes me salvation. I deserve it. See, this is the common view of Christianity in our world, isn't it? For many people, it seems like all you have to do is good works to be acceptable for God. You may have heard it said, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. This is the belief that all roads lead to heaven. That you could be a non-Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever you want as long as you're a good person. This view sees God as this big, fluffy grandfather waiting for you with his arms open, waiting to give you a hug. There's another way you can miss the point of this passage. It's by playing down the importance of good works in the Christian life. So you might also be thinking to yourself, you know, I don't need to worry about this passage. I know that I'm saved by grace through faith. I know that I just need to put my trust in Jesus and I'll be saved. See, this way sees Christianity as purely a formula. If I say the right words and confess that Jesus is Lord, then I'll be saved. I don't need to do good works. I'm saved by grace. God will accept me no matter what, as long as I ask for forgiveness. 
It's very easy to get this passage wrong, isn't it? It's very easy to misunderstand the gospel. You will never deserve the kingdom of God. That is true. It's not something that you can earn. And this might come as quite a shock to some of you. Maybe you think that you're a good person worthy of saving. But actually that you don't deserve it is the good news of the gospel. Because even though you don't deserve it, God sends in his gracious love, he sends his son to die for you that you might be saved. See, that is how valuable you are to God. That he would give up his own life for you. That he would send his one and only son to die for you. That is the value of your life. This is one of the hardest things for me to understand in my life. I know it up here in my head, but I don't know it down here in my heart. Despite having a degree in theology and knowing of God's love for me for most of my life, I still try to be good enough for God. I know I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but I still seek salvation in my own strength. And I often get really down on myself when I do sin and doubt my own salvation. You know, am I, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Surely God wouldn't want me. I'm not good enough for Him. But this is how the world thinks. It places value on industry and productivity. But Christianity has no room for it. Your salvation is not based upon your output. It's not based on what you do. It's based on your heart. It's about the realisation that you need Jesus because without him you're a big hopeless mess. It's a realisation that God has loved you so much that he sent his one and only son for you. However, this doesn't mean that we just throw good works out the window. Clearly from this passage we see that they're very important. But they do not nullify the importance of faith. See, Christianity is an exclusive faith. Not all roads lead to heaven. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. God is a judge and a king. In this passage we see Jesus as the king, with every knee bowing before his throne. But he's also a shepherd, which is true. But he's not a shepherd who lets wolves into his pen. He's a shepherd who protects, who separates, who chastises. So let's try and get a right understanding of what's going on here. This is not about works-based righteousness, nor is it works without faith. This passage is about the works that faith produce. It's a warning against hypocrisy. A warning against those who think that calling themselves Christians is enough. Who think they are sheep but who act like goats. Who think that sitting in church each week is enough. Who think to themselves, I don't need a change. I'm saved by grace. This is a warning to me. A warning against my persistent sin. It's a warning for you. Uh, as you may know, I got ordained a few weeks ago. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity I have to be in ministry and the future of ministry I have before me. I am filled with dread and fear about it. You know, the thought of being called a minister of the gospel, uh, of being set apart for this task, it just fills me with anxiety. You know, if you only knew my heart, if you only knew the thoughts in my head, you know, I'm forever now branded as a hypocrite, someone who preaches the gospel 
but will continue to sin time and time again. So this passage comes as a warning to me, a reminder that I need to change my heart, that I need to continue to put to death the sin that wages war within me and walk in step with the Spirit. It's a reminder that I can't keep living on in sin. It's a warning to not get too comfortable in my flesh, but to be continually submitting myself to God. For the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from sin in order to love what is good, to love God. It frees us from sin in order to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It should teach us to abhor sin and to love him. See, we are saved by grace, not that so we can keep on sinning, but that so that our hearts might be transformed, turned to God, and that we might delight in Him. So let this passage be a reminder that if you delight in sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're a lover of yourself more than a lover of God and of others, you will be punished. So what is the sin in your life that God is warning you about this morning? What sin do you need to put to death? What part of your life do you need to submit to Christ? This passage also comes as a reminder for us, though, that we need grace. It reminds us that we truly need Jesus. It's meant to direct you back to Him. For in your own strength, you are incapable of doing what this passage says. In your own strength, all you can do is sin. There is no good in you and there's no good in me. Time and time again, we fail to care for those who are most vulnerable. Time and time again, we put ourselves before God and before others. So friends, throw yourselves at the foot of the cross that there you might find grace and mercy. And as you're given this grace, through it you'll be empowered to do what is good, to do what God loves. You'll be freed from sin and be able to delight in Him. I wonder what your life would look like, what our church would look like if we took this passage seriously. If you loved people the way that God has loved you. What if you cared for the most vulnerable of people? What if you fed the hungry, cared for the sick, welcomed in strangers? How much greater would our gospel witness be if we went outside this wall, at these walls and cared for those amongst us? What if you visited people in prison? I'm very thankful that the Advent is doing many of these things. But I want to ask you this morning, what is your part in that mission? How do you love others as Christ has loved you? What if you saw people as Jesus saw them? Not as commodities, but as people worth dying for. What if you stopped judging people by the colour of their skin, or the size of their wallet, or the whiteness of their teeth, the shine of their car, or whatever they could do for you? How much more valuable would they be if you saw them as Jesus did, as people worth dying for? How much more time or energy would you be willing to give them? Now this is not an easy task to do. It's going to take time and energy. It's going to take a lot of prayer. But why don't you pray that God would change your heart? Why don't you pray that God would transform our church so that we might be a great witness to the power of the gospel? A witness to the power of gospel to free people from sin, from addiction, from pain and from suffering. Pray that you might be a witness to the gospel that it is for all people, 
that our church might be a sanctuary for those who are least valued, for the thirsty, for the hungry, for the sick, for the poor, for the homeless, for the prisoners and the strangers, that we might show God's love to the people who the world sees as unlovely. What value do you put on vulnerable people? What are you willing to give up for them? A cup of coffee, your clothes, an hour or a day of your week, your house, your comfort, your life? Let this passage be a reminder that God sees these people as infinitely valuable. So much so that he sent his own son to die for them, for those who need him most, for those who have been rejected and despised, for you and for me, and for all those who are far off. I pray that God would change your heart, that he would change my heart, that we would see people as God does. And I pray that your faith would be evident by your love for people. Please pray with me now. Dear Lord God, most merciful Father, please forgive us. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for seeking first our kingdom instead of yours. Please change us. Please help us to see the least in this world as of infinite worth as you do. Impress your word on our hearts, Lord, that when we come before your throne, we might hear from your lips, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Father, all this we pray for your honour and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.